Hello, friends, and welcome to Into the Word, a radio and online program committed to reading, loving, and living the whole counsel of God. Lord willing, our intention is to go verse by verse and chapter by chapter through the entire Bible. Here to continue that journey is our Bible teacher at Into the Word, Pastor Paul Carter. Your word is a lamp unto my feet. If you have your Bible with you, I'd love for you to open it now to Psalm 99. There's a noticeable shift in mood as we move from Psalm 98 to Psalm 99. I've mentioned now several times that many scholars believe that all of Psalms 93 to 100 were originally produced and circulated as a unit. They together explore the theme of Yahweh's kingship over all the earth. And there's a sense of coherence there and a sense of progression there as well, meaning that one does seem to lead into the other. In Psalm 98, the emphasis was on joy, and at the heart of Psalm 98, we encounter these marvelous words. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth, break forth into joyous song and sing praises. Sing praises to the Lord with the lyre, with the lyre and the sound of melody, with trumpets and the sound of the horn, make a joyful noise before the King, the Lord. So there, the emphasis was on how the whole creation explodes into life and joyful sounds of praise at the approach of their Lord and Sovereign. As God draws near, his dull and drained creation springs back to life and color. The rivers, the hills, even the trees join in the gladsome chorus. But now here in Psalm 99, the emphasis shifts from joy to awe. Here, we are not singing, we are trembling. The Lord reigns, let the peoples tremble. He sits enthroned upon the cherubim, let the earth quake. God is awesome, and his approach is catastrophic. The world will shake, it will crack, seas will overflow their banks, the stars will fall from the heavens, and the towers of men will crumble to the ground. And then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone, slave and free, will hide themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb, for the great day of their wrath has come and who can stand? Revelation 6, 15 to 17. And of course, that raises the question, in what sense exactly is this psalm to be understood? Is it speaking about God's eternal reign in the heavens, mediated to some extent through the temple and through the people of Israel? Or is it focused on his coming reign at some point in the ultimate future? Derek Kidner says helpfully here, while every line of this kingly portrait is true eternally, the form of the opening statement makes it primarily a proclamation, it seems, of God's final advent, closed quote. And I tend to take that view as well. Hear now the word of the Lord, beginning at verse 1. The Lord reigns, let the peoples tremble. He sits enthroned upon the cherubim, let the earth quake. The Lord is great in Zion, he is exalted over all the peoples. Let them praise your great and awesome name. Holy is he, the king in his might loves justice. You have established equity. You have executed justice and righteousness in Jacob. Exalt the Lord our God. Worship at his footstool. Holy is he. 
As often is the case in the Psalms, ultimate realities are anticipated through the lens of immediate realities. And of course, that's how the temple was designed to function. Moses built the original tabernacle according to the blueprint that he was shown of the heavenly pattern. So the earthly and the immediate speaks to the heavenly and the ultimate. That's how the Bible is put together. That's how Old Testament worship was designed. So here we see the psalmist reflecting upon the reign of God as manifesting upon the cherubim, or as the old King James Version had it, between the cherubim. The reference here, of course, is to the Ark of the Covenant. Willem van Gemeren says here, the Ark of the Covenant signified the establishment of God's kingdom on earth and as such became known as his footstool. So the Ark of the Covenant was a symbolic footstool, you might say. It promised that more of God's kingdom was still to come. And of course, we recall that after the reign of Solomon failed to deliver on its initial promise, the Ark of the Covenant mysteriously disappeared. It is as though having stuck a toe, as it were, into the world and finding the world not quite ready, the plans of God were deferred, but not derailed. Another son of David would have to come and do his work, but that work having been completed, not only the toe, but the whole body of his reign would appear and descend upon the earth. Interestingly, the Ark of the Covenant is associated with the return of Christ in the book of Revelation. Revelation eleven nineteen says, Then God's temple in heaven was opened, and the Ark of his covenant was seen within his temple. There were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, an earthquake, and heavy hail, closed quote. That glimpse of the ark, hidden, as it were, in heaven, is given just before the return of Christ to the earth, making it clear that the ark was a symbol of God's manifest reign upon the earth. So here we're being told, the Lord reigns, his kingdom is, and it is coming, and all the people tremble. As to the division of the psalm, scholars differ, but it seems that the first five verses have to do with the exaltation of God, while the next several verses have to do with the revelation of God to Israel. Verse 6, Moses and Aaron were among his priests. Samuel also was among those who called upon his name. They called to the Lord and he answered them. In the pillar of the cloud he spoke to them. They kept his testimonies and the statute that he gave them. This holy God who comes, the psalmist is saying, is also a God who hears prayers and who draws human beings into his confidence, which of course begs the question, how can a holy God answer the prayers of sinful people? Verse 8 deals with that difficulty head on. O Lord our God, you answered them. You were a forgiving God to them, but an avenger of their wrongdoings. God punished Israel for their actions, but he did not respond to them as their sins deserved. He was prepared to be merciful. And by the way, we should stop and appreciate that. We sometimes look at God in the Old Testament and we, we marvel at how severe he was. He, he sent fiery serpents into the camp. He sent a plague. He, he gave his people over to military defeat. And we think of that as being quite severe. And, and yet the perspective of people inside the Bible is that God was being merciful. He was overlooking some things. He, he wasn't actually treating the people in accordance with their sin. And that was the psalmist's perspective. And that was 
the Apostle Paul's perspective as well. In that great gospel passage in Romans 3, Paul says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus, closed quote. According to Paul, one of the issues that had to be resolved was the strange mercy of God in the Old Testament in not dealing with people according to their sins. That mystery, he says, is only finally resolved at the cross of Jesus Christ. That is where we see those former sins dealt with according to the full and awesome holiness of God. Yahweh is holy. Yahweh desires to commune with his covenant people, and therefore Yahweh prepared a sacrifice of propitiation. Thanks be to God. Verse 9, exalt the Lord our God and worship at his holy mountain, for the Lord our God is holy. Amen and amen. The RMM plan has us reading three Psalms today, so we have to keep moving. And if you have your Bible open, keep it open now to Psalm 100. This is a short psalm and a fairly simple psalm. It is a psalm giving thanks for the grace of being God's people. It is often divided into two parts, verses 1 to 3 being the first part and verses 4 to 5 being the second. However, both parts mirror each other. They both begin with a call to give thanks and then both sections end in an expression of thanks. So from beginning to end and twice in between, This is a psalm expressing gratitude for God's sovereign grace and covenant thankfulness. Hear now the word of the Lord. A psalm for giving thanks. Make a joyful noise to the Lord all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come into his presence with singing. Know that the Lord, he is God. It is he who made us and we are his. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. These first three verses represent a call for people to live in glad harmony with their creator, redeemer, and king. Martin Luther understood this psalm as referring ultimately to Christ. He said this psalm is a prophecy concerning Christ. It calls upon all to rejoice, to triumph, and to give thanks, to enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts and sanctuary with praise, because... By the gospel and the preaching of the remission of sins, that kingdom of Christ is established and strengthened, which shall remain and stand forever. Quote. Verse 4, enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him. Bless his name. For the Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever and his faithfulness to all generations. It's easy to imagine the people of God in the Old Testament singing this song as they walked through the gates into the temple. They were going to see the Lord. How much more, then, should we be eager to gather? For we have more intimate access, a better high priest, a more perfect sacrifice, a greater salvation, and a more glorious inheritance than our Old Testament counterparts could ever have hoped for, asked for, or imagined. Thanks be to God. We have one more psalm assigned to us today, Psalm 101, a psalm of David. 
Now, we've been talking for a few episodes now about how Psalms 93 to 100 are generally understood as a unit, exploring the theme of Yahweh's kingship over the whole world. Well, now here in Psalm 101, we have a Psalm of David where he speaks in his own voice about himself as king over Israel. And that makes sense. As W.S. Plumer says, the highest worship is imitation. The Lord is good. Let us be good. He is merciful. Let us be merciful. He is true. Let us be faithful. Closed quote. And so here we have David ordering his, his life, his kingship, establishing his reign out of worship. Hear now the word of the Lord, a psalm of David. I will sing of steadfast love and justice to you, O Lord. I will make music. I will ponder the way that is blameless. Oh, when will you come to me? I will walk with integrity of heart within my house. I will not set before my eyes anything that is worthless. I hate the work of those who fall away. It shall not cling to me. A perverse heart shall be far from me. I will know nothing of evil. Here, David commits himself to a life and a reign that reflects the glories, the values, and the character of the great king. Willem van Gemeren says here, The Davidic king was the Lord's vassal, and as such, was appointed to execute the wishes of his sovereign. Closed quote. And so we see David here pondering the way that is blameless. He promises to turn away from worthless examples and to be singular in his devotion and fealty. And in verse 5, we see him promising to be active in implementing the Lord's justice throughout the land. Whoever slanders his neighbor secretly, I will destroy. Whoever has a haughty look and an arrogant heart, I will not endure. I will look with favor on the faithful in the land, that they may dwell with me. He who walks in the way that is blameless shall minister to me. No one who practices deceit shall dwell in my house. No one who utters lies shall continue before my eyes. Morning by morning, I will destroy all the wicked in the land, cutting off all the evildoers from the city of the Lord. A good king fights against evil and rewards that which is good. We see the same vision for leadership in the New Testament. The Apostle Paul says in Romans 13, 3-4, For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good and you will receive his approval, for he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Closed quote. Peter says something very similar in 1 Peter 2, 13-14. He says, Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. Interestingly, in early colonial times, this psalm was sometimes referred to as the householder's psalm, and it was customary for it to be read and reflected upon at the erection of a new home or farmstead. The idea being that the head of every household was under similar obligations as King David. He, too, was to root out evil. He, too, was to encourage good within the scope of his authority, no matter how large or how small that may be. Of course, the ultimate fulfillment of this psalm rests upon Jesus, 
He encourages the good. He causes righteousness to flourish within his domain, and he will root out all evil. He himself promised to do that on the last day in Matthew 13, 40 to 43. Jesus said, just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so will it be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send his angels and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears, let him hear. At the final judgment, Jesus will sit upon his throne and he will rule the peoples with equity. He will destroy all the wicked out of the land and cut off all evildoers. No one who practices deceit shall dwell in his house, but he will look with favor upon the faithful. He will make a place for them and they will enjoy his goodness and flourish under his kindness forever. Thanks be to God. And thank you for listening to another episode of Into the Word. If you've appreciated the Into the Word ministry, I'd like to personally invite you to pay it forward by supporting one of our preferred mission partners. For the remainder of this year, we are highlighting the church planting ministry Mile One in St. John's, Newfoundland. Newfoundland is classified as an unreached population, with less than 2% of people identifying as evangelicals. Mile One Ministries is committed to helping healthy churches plant other Bible-believing, gospel-preaching churches. Here at End of the Word, I only promote ministries that I have firsthand on-the-ground experience with. Mile One is bearing fruit and is being led and stewarded by people that I know and trust. If you'd like to make a contribution to this important ministry, you can do that by visiting the Into the Word website at intotheword.ca. There are giving options there under the Give tab for both Canadian and American listeners. International listeners are welcome to give as well, though their gifts may not qualify for charitable receipts in their nation. Thank you for considering this method of showing your support for the End of the Word program. And may God alone be glorified. Your word is a lamp unto my feet.